postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up a white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church podcast. We are currently in Padanar Season 5, Deconstructing the Adventist worship wars and we're focusing specifically on how these wars are symptomatic of deeper issues in our church that severely impact our missional effectiveness especially although not exclusively in post-church western contexts. now before i jump into the next episode in, in which i'm sitting down with uh, former worship pastor musician maxwell Aka to to peel back the layers of this incredibly a painful onion I just wanted to take a moment, number one, to thank all the patrons who are supporting the Story Church project. I wish I could express to you guys just how much that matters. Because when you have a project like this on the internet, you know, just because you're posting links on the internet, it doesn't mean anybody sees it. And and what you guys do as patrons is you make it possible for me to be able to actually promote this project and get people to realize that it even exists so um thank you so much that's that's not the only thing that the patrons are are, are really uh, contribute toward but it's definitely definitely one of the huge ones so thank you so much for that and if you are interested if you would like to support the story church podcast as a patron um just go to the storychurchproject.com uh, a link at the very top support just click on there and it'll take you straight, straight to my patreon account or you can go to patreon.com slash the story church project. So thank you so much. Also wanted to remind you guys that there is a new edition of The Road, uh, Journey Through the Narrative of Scripture. If you have not yet gotten your hands on this Bible study set, go to the storychurchproject.com, read all about it. The very opening page of my website is pretty much dedicated to explaining what this new Bible study set is all about. It's sold over 1,500 copies. Um, it's got uh, over 80 reviews on Amazon, still sitting at five stars. Young people are loving it. Parents are loving it. Secular contacts who are curious about scripture and want to explore and understand God more are loving it. Basically, everyone it was designed for is really, really loving it. I'm telling you guys, you got to check it out. It may just be the resource that you need to, uh, to really pour in meaningfully to the world around you. So make sure you check that out. That is The Road, A Journey Through the Narrative of Scripture, second edition, now available on Amazon. But yeah, just go to thestorychurchproject.com and you can read all about it before you make up your mind. All right, I'm going to flip this over now. I'm going to head back to my conversation with Maxwell Aka, and I'll catch you on the other side. I just want to add to your thought, just a, cu a couple things that I think are really important uh, to, to mention. The first one being that like, when we talk about, you know, jazz, blues and rock, uh, we have to make a distinction between like black American music and African music. 
Um, because I mean, on the one hand, just at a historical level, um, African American music does have a lot of European influences in it, and and a mm-hmm. big part of the story is how like formerly enslaved people took a culture that was thrust upon them, cultural artifacts that were thrust upon them, and and remixed them and made them their own. And I, I think it's important yeah. because some of the distinctions and things we'll talk about in the next episode when we go, go into rhythm, there's actually some fairly significant differences between like the music styles that have been created on this side of the Atlantic by people of African heritage versus the music that is actually indigenous to the African continent. There is, there's quite a bit of rhythmic difference, um, similarities too, but there's significant differences. So I, I want us to make sure that we speak, um, you know, this isn't, isn't a criticism, but I want to make sure we speak very like precisely when it comes to. Yeah, things. yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think yeah, Im- absolutely. Call me out on the precision, bro. Call me out. <laughs> yeah. I think, well, uh, I think this is what we do need in this conversation is a lot more precision because so much of what's floating around is not that. Right. Im- imprecision <laughs> has been kind of the bane of the conversation at, at some level. Um, a second mm. thing I'd add, and this is kind of to, to jump off of the fact that we were talking about church policy. Um, one, one very important thing to note is that while that language, and this is even something I highlighted in, in the, the video series that I, I was doing, um, that language does exist within our manuals, within our, you know, uh, the stuff we're working with. Right. And while that is true, while we do have that, um, that language there, one, it's not always enforced, Right. There, there are plenty of places where people do get away with contemporary music of various forms and cultural music of various forms. I shouldn't say get away with, but I mean, it is something that people are trying to censor in some level. Um, so it's not all the way universally enforced, but also um, there is a group, uh, a, a collective of people known as the Adventist Musician Network. Um, one of the founders is a woman by the name of Sarah Sultan. Um, and basically, this is a group of people. I mean, some pastors, mostly musicians of various sorts, church members, people who, you know, get together to encourage each other. There's a Facebook group. But uh, what they really do is they're an advocacy group, and they have done quite a bit of work to even talk to, I, I'm, I believe, the GC, um, like about loosening some of the more unreasonable restrictions and policies when it comes to things like general conference meetings, when it comes to things like when the church is gathering together, trying to to push back and, and in some ways successfully pushing back on some of the more repressive policies that have existed. And, and you know they have had some measure of success. So I think it's important that that is highlighted as well. Um, it, it's easy for these conversations to descend into like, you know, what people might call trauma porn, um, like the, the idea of just like reveling so much in the suffering and the, the oppression. And it, you know, it's significantly Adventist Musician Network, the leadership is predominantly Black American, fr- from what I've seen. I mean, there's people from all over, right? I don't want to discredit the diversity contained within it, Caribbean people, people in the UK, people from all over are part of it. But I do think it's also worth highlighting that there is a success that has been had by this group in terms of like being persuasive and, and making a difference in the direction of inclusion. So 
I, yeah. I just want yeah. to put that out and there. And that is so that is phenomenal. I actually didn't. Yeah, I, I love that, man. I love that. That's really, really cool. I hadn't heard of that group and the work that they're doing. That's yeah, that is that is worth celebrating. That's really, really yeah. cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. I, you've got some other points you want to make. I don't know if you're, you're done with point one here. We, we've been talking about racism and culture and how that plays into this conversation. Um, and then you were going to go into rhythm, uh, the whole yeah. conversation of rhythm and time signatures in music. Th- that's something that we hear a lot from people who criticize any kind of style of music that isn't, um, you know, sort of the old school hymns. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I don't know if you're ready to hop into that now, or, but I'm, I'm happy to go there. I had one illustration that I I like to use sometimes because uh, I think it's good for self reflection, especially for you know white Christians. Um, so I could give like a final illustration, um, and then we could move on to the next topic if that's cool. Sweet, yeah, yeah, definitely. So there's this thing I used it in the the Reframe Adventist Worship series in the episode about racism, um, just as like a thought experiment, but like a, a thought experiment based in like real world stuff. Um, So imagine for a moment that you're a member of a heavy metal band. You already have a crazy drummer. You already have loud, distorted guitars and bass. Your singer is already screaming his face off, right? But you want to make the band more pagan, more pagan sounding. What will you add? You already have screaming and loud guitars and drums. So what are you going to add to make it more pagan? It's not a hypothetical question. Bands in the 90s and 2000s in America and Europe, for the most part, at least, at least initially, were asking themselves this question because some of them were dissatisfied with Christianity. Some of them were like, oh, I, I, you know, I'm pushing back against this. I don't want to be Christian. I want my music to be as pagan as possible. And so as European neo-pagans, they dug into their roots and they added things to their music to make it sound more pagan fiddles, accordions, flutes, harps, all of these instruments, these traditional European folk instruments, some of them which have also been incorporated into the classical tradition. But I'm like, flutes, harps, bagpipes, uh, like violins and accordions, like um, with the exception of bagpipes, I've heard all of these instruments played in church, right? Mm. Uh, I can't imagine. Well, that. there's that really famous bagpipe version of Amazing Grace. That's true. And and this is a thing. Yeah. You you go to a lot of Christian bookstores, even Adventist bookstores, you will likely find uh, a section devoted to Celtic worship, right? Mm. Like there, there there is an audience for that. People love, I mean, I, my favorite hymn is Be Thou My Vision, man. Like give me a... Give me an Irish melody. That's an awesome like, I'm, hymn, dude. I'm yeah. I'm all for it, man. I, I have some Irish heritage in me on my mom's side. And for whatever reason, when I hear like Gaelic or Celtic melodies, it just stirs my soul, man. I, I don't mm. know what it is. But <laughs> but European pre-Christian culture was pagan. Right? A lot of the things that were taken for granted in European culture is like, oh, this is just what music is. Well, well, well cool. But the assumptions and the way your nations, nations discovered music comes from a time before y'all were Christian, mm. right? Like, sure, yeah. it developed, like European music developed in the church and it grew and evolved into things. But at the end of the day, like there's still enough pagan connotation in those instruments and those melodies and those approaches to harmony and, and so on 
that still evokes paganism today for secular people, mm. right? Mm. And, and so if we can have like entire sections of Christian music that's like, oh, here's the Celtic worship section and see no issue with it, then it's like, okay, who, what culture presumes to, def to define and tell everyone else that they're pagan, mm. right? What, and what kind of lens do you have to have in order to say like everyone else's cultural artifacts are pagan, but mine can be baptized, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, and very, very obviously, I think, and hopefully obviously, you have to consider the possibility that there is some racism underlying what we think can be baptized and brought into the church and what mm -hmm. is forever irredeemable. That's um, right. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think that this is actually an interesting point. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I've often referred to this phenomenon, uh, what I what I refer to as Anglo proximalism. And what I mean by that is that there seems to be a willingness within traditional culture to embrace a diversity of music so long as the music approximates an Anglo sensitivity. Like right. if it approximates it to some degree, you know, like, so I've had people push back on me and say, oh, no, you know, Adventists love African American worship music. Uh, you know, we, the, the Negro spirituals are, we've got Negro spirituals in our hymn book. Um, yeah. and, and, and the thing I, I often say, it's like, the, you know, those are beautiful songs, but they're also the kinds of songs that your sensitivities are okay with. And so it's like, okay, we, we like that one because it's like, it doesn't bother our sensitivities too much. But the moment you bring in a, a worship song that does have sensitivities or an expression that's so unique that it's, you know, for example, I think you mentioned this in your, in your, um, in your video series. Like if, if someone actually showed up at church and tried singing a worship style, a worship song that was like bonafide Arabic, <laughs> right. you know, like no one would enjoy it. It'd be like, no, that's wrong. Something's wrong with that. It's like, because right. it, it's, it's, it's not Anglo proximal. Like it's, it's, it's yeah. too, it's too different, you know? Um, yeah. and, and so this is a challenge that I, I've often seen. It's like people justify it because they say, oh, no, but I, there's diversity here, here, and here. And it's like, yeah, it's diversity that you're willing to embrace so long as it's somewhere in the, the vicinity <laughs> of the, the sensibilities that you already like. Anything beyond that is automatically dehumanized. It's curated diversity. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's a really interesting point that you mentioned because it's like, Okay, so these metal bands wanted to go more pagan, and they didn't add a second drummer. <laughs> right. They added harps and violins. Like yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, it's I and mean, it's 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 one of those things where if you're not in tune with what's happening culturally, you would have you wouldn't be present to that conversation, right? But to mm. me, it was like, oh yeah, I've known about this like folk metal thing for a long time, and you know, since then it has expanded to other regions of the world. It's it's a fascinating genre because like mm. you'll you'll hear like Chinese bands. There, there's a Taiwanese band I like actually that like their their lead singers up there are, like screaming, and then he pulls out this thing called an erhu, which is like a upright two-stringed violin and he'll like he'll play violin over top of these like metal riffs and stuff and you're just like what is going on you know what i mean <laughs> but it's it's the coolest thing in the world i think um i i yeah. love the idea of people bringing their cultural heritage to their music making and fusing 
the the extremely modern with the extremely ancient like i think that there's mm. something incredibly powerful about that um yeah, yeah. but at, at the end of the day you have to acknowledge like at some level or another like if you go far enough back in any given part of the world like every culture has some kind of pagan or animistic something in its background mm. mm -hmm. right and so we have to not yeah. be too uh, choosy about how right. we identify that so that's right you know, that, yeah. that's, that's what and that's what i use that illustration for yeah and and i i think that's a really good point just before we jump on to the next one that um you know, sometimes people get uncomfortable and will say things like, you know, so are you suggesting that in the name of culture, everything is permissible? Um, and, and my response to that is generally that that's not the angle that I'm coming at it from. Um, the angle that I'm coming at it from is that all cultures, all cultures have aspects of themselves that are at like, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, that are out of harmony with with God's heart and aspects that are in harmony with his heart, aspects that are redemptive and aspects that are that are cruel. Like you can think of tr certain tribal cultures that practice female genital mutilation, you know, like right. that's clearly like antichrist, you know, like this, there's right. clearly issues there that would have to, in a very sensitive way, be addressed, deconstructed and, and, and revisited with Christ at the center as like, how do we move forward as, as a society um, with faith in Jesus? So I, I don't think, and, and you, maybe you have a different take on it, but like, I don't think that pulling out the culture card means that everything is okay because it's culture and that's all the end of it. But my point is like, we should not act as though European culture is exempt from having aspects of itself that are beautiful and aspects of itself that are contrary to God's heart. And right. the, every, every culture has to be approached with that scrutiny in mind. And what I see taking place is the assumption that if it's Anglo-American and it's from the 50s and before, it's holy and it's just and it's good. Like that's what we, that's, that's holiness and anything else is unholy. And I'm like, nah. <laughs> yeah, nah. And I when mean, you dig deep, you find it's the opposite. Yeah. There's, there's kind of a distressingly condescending thing built into that assumption too, that like, oh, anything you're, oh, you say culture. So you mean complete relativism and, and everything goes right. Mm. And it's mm -hmm. like, well, buddy, not everything is acceptable in other cultures either right like other cultures also have limitations of things that are acceptable and unacceptable but if you if your if your reaction to hearing is say like be inclusive of other cultures is oh so nothing is wrong and, and everything is just like everything goes anything goes well that is a very indirect way of saying other cultures are barbaric and have no mm -hmm. moral standards so mm -hmm. again it's like check your assumptions like if, <laughs> Absolutely. If I, if I say include other cultures and you say that means just moral chaos it's like oh so you think other cultures are morally chaotic yeah. got it yeah <laughs> right. and what, what i often remind people is as much as you know like i i'm my background is being puerto rican my background is taino have a lot of taino blood in in my in my heritage um and uh and obviously as a puerto rican there's spaniard and african and that and that mix as well i'm not going to go into that history but what I often say to people in having these conversations, just to kind of pull back, and it might, maybe it's a little bit, you know, <laughs> theatrical, but just to kind of pull back a little bit and help people see, like, 
what what I'm talking about in terms of recognizing that all cultures have beauty and 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 chaos inherent within them is that look I mean we can talk about animism in 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 cultures and the theological implications of that and and we can talk about paganism and you know the worship of you know a pantheon of gods and all those things that we I'm, I'm certainly open to that but we should t- also talk about how this this despite all of that um, for example, going back to Taino culture, like we're not the ones who colonized the earth and <laughs> and and have raped multiple continents of their resources in order to right. amass incredible levels of wealth and power. Like we didn't do that. Europeans did. So the assumption that Eurocentric value structures are somehow more refined, sacred and acceptable to God um, right. is our assumptions we need to seriously deconstruct. Yeah, hugely so. But that, that's a perfect but, part to end this at. But. It, it does. Yeah, it does. Uh, awesome. So let's, so this brings us a, a question um, that can jump us into the next part. Um, the question of, because we were talking about, you know, um, um, different cultures and, you know, embracing the musical heritage of different cultures and seeing the beauty in them. But here is where a lot of people will say, yeah, but scientifically speaking there are certain rhythms and time signatures in music that have that can lead you to sin basically and you've seen the studies you know all oh, drum beats make you more sexual and so you're more likely to have sin sexually if you're listening to them or there are certain time signatures that make you more violent certain styles of music that make you more violent etc cetera, etc cetera. um and then and then they cite these studies uh like these people did this study with the rats and they played jazz to them you know like <laughs> so we'll talk about the studies in a minute um but walk walk us through that how, how do you make sense or how can we make sense of these points and these arguments? Like, how can we see it broadly and inform ourselves so we can parse them in a, in a helpful way? Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a thing that some of, in my undergrad, I, I double majored theology and philosophy, right? And my philosophy profs had, one of them had this thing he referred to as expertitis, uh, the phenomenon where if someone knows something a lot, you know, knows a lot, something a lot, where is my English going? If someone knows a lot about one topic, they start to think of themselves as an expert in every other topic as well, right? Um, and so this is, this is a thing that I think pastors are particularly susceptible to, where they've done biblical studies, and so they think it makes them an anthropologist and a psychologist and uh, a musicologist. And no, right? I'm it not even does those things. not. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even those things. And like I'm at least a fairly competent musician, but like I I'm not, I don't have the knowledge base that some people have. So I have to function within the knowledge of my own limitations too. And I say all of that as a way of getting to this point that like knowing things matters, right? Uh, having a serious knowledge base on a given topic is actually important. Um, you know, obviously, like the the next two uh, topics that I've got on our list are, are going to overlap a little bit. Like, there's a rhythm conversation to be had on like the music and music theory side of things, and then there's definitely a conversation to be had about how we conduct ourselves with science um, and and philosophy more broadly. But um, I I put it to people like this: 
if you don't actually understand what you're hearing when you listen to music, if you don't, if you can't correctly identify the different elements of music, then you cannot conduct scientific research on those elements. You can't even read research that other people have conducted because if you if you can't differentiate between syncopation and polyrhythm, for example, if you don't know what the difference between those two things are, then you can't read scientific research on rhythm and and come to accurate conclusions. It's like and this is this is the thing I, I say um, sometimes. Like if I were to come up to you and say, "Hey, Marcos, I've been doing a lot of uh, research about uh, uh, cancer." I've been reading about cancer. I've been reading scientific journals about cancer. And, and you say to me like, oh, interesting. Well, what have you learned? And I say to you, oh, well, you know, some cancer patients, they have this thing where uh, there are these little scars in their nervous system that prevent messages from traveling to their brain, to their appendages. Um, and, and, you know, they have to be treated with chemo. And that's how I know it's cancer. You would say, Max, it sounds like you think multiple sclerosis and cancer are the same condition, which they are not. So <laughs> it doesn't matter how scientific my sources are. You can't trust me as a researcher because I don't understand the terminology of the field I'm reading about. I can't mm. correctly identify like what's this about and versus what's that about, right? And, and that's a, a huge problem I find with the, the Adventist music debate. There are people who come and say like, oh, look, I read this scientific study on this, or look at all these sources on this. And then when you actually interrogate the sources or even just like the, the logical leaps that they make, you're like, you're, you're not even, this source isn't talking about what you think it's talking about. You don't know the difference. You, you don't know the music theory well enough to even know what you're listening to. So how am I supposed to take you seriously to, to extrapolate from this is what the music sounds like to this is what it means for us on a biological or a moral level. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's my spiel. <laughs> well, let's, let's, let's back up a little bit here. Cause I, I want to talk about these, these uh, studies um, in a minute, but mm -hmm. syncopation is something yeah. that we hear a lot about in these conversations, the evils of syncopation. Right. Um, what, what is this? Like, what, what, are, what are the myths that surround this? Because there's clearly a lot of myths that surround this conversation. Yes. So walk us, walk us through that. Okay. So when it comes to syncopation, um, there is, have you ever seen that book series, like, in, like blank for dummies? Yes. Like, yeah. Like mo yeah. motorcycle repair for dummies or like Greek philosophy for dummies, right? Uh, so there is a, music theory for dummies version of how to explain syncopation, right? Okay. Which is essentially um, one, two, three, four, right? If you have a, a, a measure of four, four time, and you've got four beats in a bar, one, two, three, four, um, the argument goes like, oh, the natural rhythmic cadence there is one, two, three, four, strong, weak, strong, weak, right? And, and the, the, the music theory for dummies explanation is, so syncopation is putting the emphasis where you don't expect it. So putting it on two and four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, weak, strong, weak, strong, which is 
fairly obviously the where that the where the way that the snare drum that was that was way and snare combining into one word in my mouth <laughs> um the way that the snare drum is played in typically like rock and r&b music right right and so people will say like so that that's an example of what syncopation means right now what happens is people take this definition of syncopation for dummies and run with it like it is the most like profoundly established musical fact. It's kind of the equivalent of me, you know, sending a resume, sending a job application to Andrews University and just being like, hey, I'd like to be a linguistics professor. Oh, cool, linguistics, that would be a great addition to our program. Well, uh, what are your qualifications? Ha <laughs> I before E except after C. Like, no, you're not a professor, right? Like, it's like, okay, cool. You know one little mnemonic device. You, you know an aphorism, right? A way of teaching things to the most basic rudimentary level of understanding that upon further inspection will not hold up to scrutiny, right? Mm. I before E except after C does not make you an English professor or a linguist. In the same way, one, two, three, four, does not make you a music theorist. You, that, that is like the most simplified, reduced way of explaining syncopation. And to the point that like, if you actually talk to people in music theory, they'll be like, yeah, that's, that's not even really what we mean when we say syncopation. Mm -hmm. So um, to, the, to the point that, I, and this is something I put in one of the videos, or, or a video on rhythm, um, you can find tutorials on YouTube of rock drummers who do, in fact, place their that snare drum hit on two and four, talking about that beat, what we call the backbeat, talking about that as something unsyncopated, something that you would actually add syncopation to in order to make it more interesting and more complex. There, there is a sense in which all four of those beats, one, two, three, four, are all the strong beats. And the spaces in between them, things that, I mean, if you're in four, four time, one, two, three, four are quarter notes, right? This might be getting into more specific music theory territory. But between those quarter notes, those spaces can be divided. Eighth notes, 16th notes, 32nd notes, all of this is just math and division, right? Mm. There, are, there are spaces, shorter, faster rhythms between i'm waving my hands like i'm drumming as if people can can see me <laughs> um, <laughs> like that there are spaces between those four notes that are also like things you can play with you, you can add accents between them that's where things actually start to really get syncopated right hmm. um like that that's where like really unexpected things can happen in the music where you can you can hit people with like oh i didn't know that that was going to happen there um Interestingly, this is also uh, th the fact that it's a conversation that skews around drumming in particular, it, it, that, that is biased, right? That is biased to saying, let, let's fixate on drums because racist cultural assumptions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people in, in music theory talk about syncopation. They're talking about melody, right? Melodies have a rhythm, right? So if I were to sing like, uh, like something aggressively not syncopated onward christian soldiers marching as to war everything is on the on beat right mm -hmm. if i were to syncopate that it would be like 
onward christian soldiers marching as to war right like all of a sudden there's unexpected things happening there and it's interestingly less robotic it's more free-flowing it's more Hmm. it's almost more conversational because Mm -hmm. human speech does not take place like this this is not how i speak english right there's a natural (laughs) ebb and flow there's acceleration and deceleration there there is syncopation in natural free-flowing human speech it is very normal Right. Mm. And so adding syncopation, I mean, you, you can also do like that very strict rhythmic thing. I mean, onward Christian soldiers, it's a march. So it's emulating the strict, you know, very mm. like sti- in some ways stiff movements of marching. Right. But it's meant to evoke that. But that's not all there is to life. Right. Mm-hmm. Most of life is much more fluid. Fluid motion is a good natural thing, and syncopation just evokes that fluidity, mm-hmm. right? And it is a, a concept that very much applies to melody, right? Um, so one of the hilarious examples is that uh, someone who might be like the poster child of anti-syncopation is obviously Christian Verdal. If you go on his website, he's also a singer, and you can find a sample of him singing um, give me Jesus, right? In the morning when I rise. Well, that I, in the morning when I rise, that I is syncopated. It's on the offbeat, mm. right? And and it doesn't sound egregious. It doesn't sound like way out of place. And the reason for that is because like, yeah, fluid rhythmic motion is very natural to human life. Like it, it would it would be off if you sang it, in the morning when I rise, like you'd be like, like what kind of like stilted robot music is that, right? But like, yeah. th- this is the thing. When you build your whole theory around being like syncopation is bad, well, like you have to actually understand what it is and be able to identify it, right? Mm. Because otherwise you're going to be like firing in the dark, like at random and hitting random targets. Yeah. Um, I remember distinctly... Uh, <laughs> Um, a, a moment like years ago, like over a decade ago, I was listening to a particular Adventist preacher who I won't name, who I knew from his approach and his heavy use of Ellen White almost exclusively in his preaching, that he was part of this uh, perspective that like syncopation's bad or whatever, right? Um, and, you know, since I, I want to distinguish there's syncopation and there's the backbeat, right? So the backbeat traditionally is that emphasis on two and four, one, two, three, four, right? That's what we call that backbeat. It is a minimal type of syncopation, kind of. People do believe that that's wrong. And I remember this Adventist pastor preaching a whole sermon and then singing a solo. He did a special music. And in his backing track, it was it was jazz adjacent. It wasn't truly jazz. It was much more subdued than that and, and not that complex. But uh, there was a hi-hat, like, the, uh, like the, the part of a drum kit that's called a hi-hat, the, the two symbols that are like squashed together going tss, 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 on two and four, just keeping time. That's a backbeat. It's not a bombastic snare hit, but it's still a backbeat. And I think he just didn't know that that's what he was hearing because it didn't fit into the the framework of like loud pummeling rock drummer. You know what I mean? 
Like it, yeah, it didn't sound yeah. like, like that kind of thing. And so he wasn't able to identify it because a lot of the people who preach in this lane don't actually really understand music theory. They don't think critically about it. So it, it's one of those things that's just like hilarious to me where people will, will get into this line of preaching really deeply and not actually understand the terminology and the concepts that they're preaching about. That's right. That's right, man. And and I would just I would just add to that as well that even the preachers who do try and do their homework in learning music theory for dummies, for example, mm-hmm. um, and then attempt to use that as a as a sort of like a like a like a ruler by which they measure the straightness of diverse music styles. Um, one of the things to to keep in mind, which you mentioned in the previous section, is that a lot of what has been termed music theory historically is is basically just the European opinion of of what proper music should be. And right. so you can learn that, but that doesn't mean that music theory in and of itself, and look, I, I say this to people all the time, like I don't think there's anything bad or wrong with the European music style. Like I love hymns. I love classical music. Um, mm-hmm. I, I love, I, I, I think European culture has a lot of beauty and color. It's added to this world, but it's yeah. the assumption that this is the ruler by which everything else should be measured. And like, it's not like I've heard preachers like, Oh, you know, I did, you know, and I had a friend of mine tell me one time, he's like, Oh, I know this pastor who studied music theory. And he was showing me how the way this lady was singing was all wrong because didn't match the music theory. And I didn't know what to say at the time until later on I learned, well, I was like, yeah, but that's just European music theory. What like what would music theory look like if it was written by Polynesians? What would it look right. like if it was constructed by Africans, by Asians, by Taino Indians? You know, Absolutely. going back to to my heritage, like it would look totally different. And right. as, to assume that the European music theory is inherently nested with a greater degree of reliability or or rightness is a racial or racist assumption essentially right um so yeah like yeah, even knowing music so. theory doesn't automatically make you mean that everything you say it, yeah anyways i think i've made my <laughs> made my point no, there. absolutely yeah. it's it's a it's a really important point um oh gosh my train of thought sometimes it just it, it gets away from me um oh yeah there's a term i used earlier in what i guess will have been the previous episode to to your listeners um, I use the, the term ethnomusicologist. Um, what do you suppose is the difference between, in, in academia, what do you suppose is the difference between a musicologist and an ethnomusicologist? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a, a wild guess here. A musicologist is working entirely off of the European model of music yeah. theory, whereas an ethnomusicologist is seeking to incorporate different ethnic expressions of music into what music theory should be. Or could be. Well, basically, the musicologist is someone who studies, yeah, what you said, European music, and an ethnomusicologist is someone who studies music from people who are not white. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so it's like, I mean, the way you framed it made it seem a little more inclusive, but even the distinction to mm. say like, oh, this is a musicologist, and then this is someone who studies ethnic music. Mm. It was like, well, a newsflash all of those things, those two categories you just described, all of them are just music. That's right. There's no such thing as ethnic. I mean, all, all music, like you should only have one term. Yeah. Like white music is ethnic music because 
Europeans have ethnicities, right? <laughs> like this, yeah. There is a difference between French music and Irish music. There's a mm. di- there's a huge night and day difference between like Greek music and British music, right? Like these are all ethnicities. So why are those not the field of ethnomusicologists? Mm. Because excellent point. whiteness is normalized, mm-hmm. right? That's right. So this this is again one of those things where it's like these implicit and unconscious biases that mm. are just ingrained in us by like people use the word culture and they immediately go to like how, how do you wear your pants? What kind of beats do you like? I'm like, no, no, culture, culture is like how you view civilization, you know, mm-hmm. like that, that's, that's culture, right? Yeah. People, people will talk about like, well, black culture. I'm like, who, the church auntie or the rapper on the street corner busking? You know what I mean? Like j- just because people come from the same ethnic group doesn't mean they're even engaged in the same cultural practices mm-hmm. or that they view each that's other right. as part of the same, right? There's culture. There's subcultural groups within cultures, mm-hmm. right? A culture within a culture. There's there's so mu- there's so many yeah. layers to this. So absolutely, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a good observation you bring up, man. So let me let me go back to this syncopated thing, only because yeah. it just it just gets hammered so much. Um, yeah. So what I hear you saying is syncopation is a is a phenomenon that is infinitely more complex than most people give it credit for within the music wars conversation. Yeah. Um, and the people who tend to talk about it are taking a very simplistic elementary definition and building or introducing logical leaps and assumptions based on that, that are just patently false, but to the untrained mind can sound good. Um, yeah. What what would you say are some of the more common logical leaps that you've heard um, that that people make yeah. in, in in this in so this conversation? Yeah, there is this uh, anachronism that people use where they'll say like syncopation came from Africa, Syn- syncopation came from black people, and it's it's so ingrained in our culture. Um, and and interestingly, the the way that people relate to rhythm has changed over time to a point where, you know, interestingly, it has been a, a point that's actually been in many cases adopted by the black community, a, a perspective that like black people will say like, oh, yeah, white people can't find the two and the four. So it's like, boom, ka, boom, boom, ka. if you've got a beat that's like going at that pace. You'll, you'll be like, oh, yeah, and you'll actually see this. You'll go to, to a black church and the one white person in attendance who is like clapping on the one and the three. So everyone else is like, and the white guy is like, and it seems so stiff and out of place, right? Um, interestingly, uh, there's a book actually written by an Adventist musician, uh, an Adventist professor, Dr. Lillian Dukan. And one of the things that she points out is that the way we've parsed this terminology has actually skewed history for us. So syncopation is actually very much a part of the European music tradition, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it mm-hmm. happens a lot in the melodies that classical composers used. Um, but interestingly, uh, and, and this is crazy, if you go and look at some of the, the documentation of like racist articles from the early 20th century, right? Where people are disparaging jazz, right? And they will say, oh, jazz 
Uh, one of the things that they'll actually blame black people for is the way that uh, they used harmony in offensive ways. Uh, notes between notes, partial tones, and and harmonic extensions of chords that would have never thought to have been used in the European tradition, right? Uh, things that aren't like correct harmony as the classical world would define it. But syncopation, interestingly, some of those sources will say, oh yeah, syncopation, the offbeat, they'll blame the Slavs for that. Um, hmm. Eastern Europeans. Um, hmm. it, it's it's really fascinating. And there's there's kind of like a, an audio joke that I included in, in one of my videos where Christian Berdahl is explaining, he's trying to explain syncopation and failing at it. But he's he's using the backbeat theory, and he's like, oh, so it's it's placing it on the offbeat. So like, Jesus loves me. This I know. Oh, for the Bible, he does this this parody, <laughs> and he's like, suddenly it's a hip hop feel, and I'm like, dude, that's polka. I'm like, that's polka. That's a Eastern European folk music. What are yeah. you talking about, yeah. dude? That is the furthest thing from hip hop. But it's like, <laughs> and you can easily recognize that as like, oh, that's very Eastern European, right? Mm. But, it, you know, it was foreign enough to people of Western European extraction in the Americas to be like, oh, that's weird and foreign to me, right? Now, when you get to a place in the Americas where a lot of cultures are intermingling and, and, and you know, cross-pollinating, what you get is a little influence from here and a little influence from here and a little influence from here and they blur together right and very often that blurring can cause it to be difficult for us to act accurately assess like where certain things came from so one of the things that Lillian Dukan points out in her book is that when you actually study especially West African music styles the thing that really defines West African rhythm is not like yeah, but it's not it you go to West Africa, the music isn't like these big ACDC sounding rock beats, right? Like that's, <laughs> that's not what they're doing. They're yeah. not like boom, yeah, boom, boom, yeah. That's not what they're doing over there, right? Mm. Uh, West African music is defined by polyrhythms. So one of the things uh, Berdal is a is a consistent defender on this, but I've heard multiple people do this, not understanding the difference between a polyrhythm and uh syncopation, right? Polyrhythms are when you have two or more different types of rhythm happening at the same time, right? In the same amount of space. So the easiest one to perform, and my left hand is terrible at snapping, so I don't know how this will come across. Maybe I'll, I'll slap on my chest near this microphone, okay? So you could have um, this polyrhythm. So what's going on there is you're going one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, right? That's a rhythm of two beats, right? And in the same amount of time as three beats, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. You put those together. I really don't know how well this is picking up, but you get like da, 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 da. So it's two different rhythms happening in the same amount of time. So it, on their own, it's either one, two, one, two, dun, dun, which feels like its own thing, or Dun, 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 dun. That's more waltzy. But you put them together and it's like dun, 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 right? And it, it's greater than the sum of its parts. And there are musicians who can, you know, extrapolate this to like 
crazy effect. Um, I gave an example of um, Jacob Collier. He's kind of like, I don't know if you've heard of him before. He's like a, a guy out of the UK, kind of a prodigy, kind of one of those like once in a lifetime talents that just like blows everyone's minds. But he has this song called Hideaway. And the second verse of that song has the craziest polyrhythms in it. And it's a soft song. It's a ballad. It's a soft song. But it's got these wild polyrhythms. It's, just, it's extremely musically complex. Um, but that type of thing was introduced into the Western vocabulary from people stolen from Africa. Right? So it, it's... Um, it's really easy to get these misconceptions. You listen to African music and you can be like, oh, I see there's multiple rhythms going on here. Yeah, totally, I get that. Um, but it doesn't necessarily sound the same as like the Western backbeat, even though the backbeat was kind of, you know, pioneered and, and catalyzed and refined in African-American music styles. It is different. It is mm -hmm. like, it, it's something that Black Americans took from a little bit of African influence and a little bit of European influence, like that offbeat thing, right? And, and they made something new with it. Something that's interesting is, I don't know if you've ever heard what in gospel, in, in the gospel tradition is called shout music, but it's, it's the really fast gospel music, right? Where everyone's like, yep, yep, right? But you listen to that beat, that's the polka beat. How did that get in the hands of African extracted people? So there was something that happened in the 19th century, 20th century called the minstrel show where, and this is where a white performer would dress up in blackface as a form of mockery of black people and, and do like a silly performance for white people to laugh at. Right. What happened was that, and, and, you know, obviously they would use their own musical vocabulary to satirize and, and make fun of black culture. And Black Americans, being in the lesser position of power, would, in their own spaces, make fun of the minstrel show and, and make fun of white people making fun of them, right? And so it's, it's a very hostile environment, obviously, but it's also a form of cultural interaction. And through the minstrel show, elements of Black culture seeped into white culture and elements of white culture seeped into Black culture. So it's, it's, it's this fascinating thing. And obviously there's, there's more history to that and it's kind of a reductive way of explaining it. But it's interesting to see a beat that would kind of be like a polka beat being now a, a very identifiable and characteristic part of gospel music, right? And, and I mean, by the same token, what is maybe the most white American instrument you can think of? The banjo? Like, it doesn't get more country than the banjo, right? <laughs> like, the banjo yeah. is the, the whitest thing you could possibly think of. Interestingly, <laughs> the antecedents to that instrument are actually an African instrument, right? Mm. The banjo is an African instrument that was appropriated by white culture. Obviously, the construction of the instrument changed over time by, by quite mm -hmm. a lot, you know? Um, but, like, the, the basics of it trace back to Africa. So... It's one of those things where you realize like how much shifting and changing and, and, and stuff has happened over the course of time. It's, it's not always easy to identify like who brought what element to the table. That's right. right? 
and and so when we start vilifying certain things and saying like oh that's demonic oh that has a pagan or occult or voodoo heritage is like make sure you're you know which thing you're talking about in the first place <laughs> right um yeah ivor myers has had sermons before where he's like oh this beat the boom boom ka, boom boom ka. that's the that is the uh the basis of all rock, hip hop, R&B, whatever. And it's like, well, one, false. There are lots of things in those genres that don't use that beat. Um, but two, the way that that has been framed as being the quintessentially African beat completely misses the fact that the beat that's used in a lot of African music, Afro-Cuban music, Afro-Caribbean music, Afro-Brazilian music is this. which is mm. what in Spanish is called the son clave. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's in Spanish, but like um, there's also a truncated version of that that's shorter that is very recognizable from like any Caribbean worship that you might've experienced, which is this. Like you've heard yeah. that rhythm before, right? Mm -hmm. Or in dance hall, it's like boo, boo, ga, boo, boo, ga. probably slower in dance hall. In soca music, it's like really fast, like da, 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 da. it's like super fast in soca. But like in all of these music styles, it's it's a rhythm known as a tresillo or like these three notes together, right? Hmm. And that it, like dance hall, soca, calypso, um, it's to some extent in bossa nova, like a, a variation of the clave. So many South American and Central American and Caribbean music styles use this rhythm that never enters into the conversation with Adventism, right? Mm. I've never heard an Adventist pastor say like the evils of the clave or the evils of the tresillo. <laughs> They're fixated on the backbeat, which is really a, a facet of American musical history, right? So, it, but people act like it's the only thing that matters. Like a lot of the time, like drummers are not playing a backbeat in church worship. You know, like if you go to any given Jamaican worship service, if they're playing ska, okay, you'll, you'll hear a backbeat. And ska is a big part of like the Jamaican uh, music, like worship tradition. Also, I'm, I'm married to a Jamaican woman and I know that ska is also an Americanized pronunciation. For many Jamaicans, they would say ska. Um, but anyways... Mm. This is, this is the thing, like, I, I come from, like, the metal and punk tradition. So, like, the punk guys adopted ska, and they were like, oh, it's ska. There's, there's so much history there of, like, things that get lost in translation. <laughs> yeah. But, like, man, um, when it comes down to it, like, sometimes if they're using the, that Calypso beat, they're not using a backbeat at all, right? It's not boom, ka, boom, boom, ka. Um, interestingly, there's also... Uh, when I was at Andrews, I got the, uh, really familiarized. I mean, even before that, but really familiarized with this one song that was used, um, the doxology. Um, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That song, the way that they do it at New Life Fellowship on the campus of Andrews University, they do it in three, four time. And the rhythm that they use is boom, get, get, boom, get, get, boom, get. Praise God from whom, right? Like it's it's that rhythm, which interestingly, boom, da, da, boom, da, da, boom, da, da, that's a waltz. Mm -hmm. That's a European ballroom rhythm, right? That is from European dancing. And that was adopted by Black Americans. And it was 
it was transformed, right? It was, it was black Americanized and, and it became mm. its own thing. It became its own cultural expression. That is, it feels like black church. Like it, it, when they clap their hands on that, it's like, oh, this is, I'm at church church right now, you know, <laughs> but it, 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 that is a, a beat from Europe. That's a waltz. Mm. And yeah. so the, the way people talk about rhythm, I mean, you'll have a drummer like at a drum set playing that and and it's like people will think like oh the syncopated beat and the backbeat rhythms that's why we can't have a drum set bro during caribbean sabbath you could go a whole worship set with lots of very loud drumming and there is never a backbeat played the whole time right it's just like one intro with like a waltz beat in that in their version of the doxology and then the rest of it is just the calypso beat the the son clave or the tresillo hmm. right and and again it's like when you lack the music literacy you can invent all kinds of fictions and just be like the rock and roll beat is is is, is corrupting the youth and the youth are not even using it Mm. right mm. like it's it's just absolutely <laughs> the, the fallacies are all over the place yeah. man like yeah. but it, again it comes down to having an adequate knowledge base and understanding music mm. and and the music of different cultures and and the yeah. history behind like how modern styles came to be what they are um and, right. and if people don't have that then you know they're going to make up fiction yeah <laughs> absolutely man i want to i want to make a point on literacy and i also want to make a point on on the whole idea of corruption in the next episode i want to i want to dig into the philosophy behind this whole idea that um which you hear a lot about in these conversations from the sort of conservative angle that certain beats can corrupt you or that evil influences can inhabit certain beats which is which interestingly enough are philosophical ideas that are actually very unbiblical but we'll we'll, yes. we'll get to that in 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 a second um but the idea of um i think it was the documentary 13th by uh, Ava DuVernay if i pronounced that properly um where it really hit me that there was a season in american history and it happened before but obviously if we go back to um, the whole notion of like the degenerate people, right? And right. their debased music. And, you know, there was this notion that um, African people were inherently degenerate or debased. And, um, and that if you associated with their music, that you, it would debase you, right? And right. so this is a reason why um, the Nazis, for example, tried to ban all African music in, in Germany. They wanted it gone because they saw it as a corrupting influence that would, would corrupt the youth. Uh, and, and again, this wasn't, this wasn't rooted simply in the idea that the music was bad. This was rooted in the idea that the culture it came from was bad. Was bad. And yeah. so this was, you know, like nowadays you hear people talking about the music is bad um, without realizing that that idea is deeply tied to the racial concept that the culture and the the race itself is bad. And yeah. you can't really separate those two, although we try to, because it's like culturally inappropriate now to, you know, suggest those things. But there's another layer to this as well, that there was a, and, and I don't want to go into like, all the history because we'll be, be here for a while, but if anyone's interested, definitely check out 13th by Eva, Eva DuVernay. Um, I believe it's on, on, on Netflix still. 
documentary titled 13th, there's a section in there where she talks about the period of time in American history where the, the objective was to criminalize African-American culture. And so the goal here was to make anything that um, was reflective of African-American culture synonymous with criminality. And so the idea then that um, the idea sort of evolved from, you know, people of African descent are degenerate to people of African descent are, are criminals. Um, and there were even films that were made that depicted African people as, you know, African males as rapists. You know, and um, um, they 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 had no control over their sexual impulses, and um, there was this whole notion of uh, you know defending the um, the 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 virtue of the white woman from from the and, and so this was part of the interracial marriage you know tension, um, and so this idea that you can criminalize an entire race of people and then paint this narrative that. If our youth are exposed to this music, um, then th it will corrupt them in, in that sense. Like, you know, if it comes from that culture, you, it's going to lead them down the path of, you know, right. criminality or, or crime, whatever, you know, yeah, yeah, destruction and all these things. Um, and, and these are conversations that were, are far transcend our Adventist subculture. Like these are conversations yeah. that were taking place all throughout secular you know, westernized, heavily racist culture. Uh, and it seems like we've forgotten that. And we take these same ideas and we sort of baptize them and detach them from their horrendous history, but continue to teach the same ideas. Um, yeah. And so with that comes the, the notion of literacy that you pointed out. And, and, and you know, coming back to this idea of how this conversation uh, is symptomatic of our missional ineffectiveness, with emerging generations is that I think we've gotten, and tell me, tell me what you think about this. Like, I think we have gotten too used as, as, as Adventists, we've gotten too used to, what's the word I'm looking for? Reducing complex issues to, to, to cheesy platitudes yeah. that, that we then stretch out to, you know, create the, the myths and the, the fictions that you were talking about. Yeah. Um, we we don't know how to actually understand culture. We don't know yeah. how to dig deep and build lasting bridges with culture in diverse ways because we're we're so used to just demonizing anything that's different, and and that's what I see in this particular section as we're talking about syncopation. Like the main thing that I gather as I'm hearing you explain this is like, yo, this stuff is this stuff is way more complicated. Then and I know like you're trying really hard to keep it simple, and it's still like wow, like this is complex, <laughs> you know. Right. Like I can only imagine if this was like an academic lecture for like professional musicians, like right. you know the the language. I would be so lost. I'd be like, what are they talking about? It's so complex. But right. we're so used. That goes to... over my head. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. It's like no, no, that's okay. Um, I, 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 I think then nested within this is the symptom that's nested within this tendency to oversimplify is, is, is something that transcends the, the syncopation conversation. It's, it's how we engage culture altogether. We oversimplify it, we dehumanize it, we demonize it, uh, and then we just attack it from our comfortable fortresses in our churches 
and wonder why we're losing young people and why we're not reaching emerging secular Western people. And, you know, like our churches are growing migrant wise, but when it comes to like in the UK, Australia, Canada, um, France, Ireland, you know, like the actual like local secular emerging secular generations are, are not being reached by any stretch of the imagination. And, and personally, I feel like a big part of that is this tendency within our culture to not seek to understand the other and to dig deep. And we may not ever be able to create a complex, you know, like we're not all historians and, you know, sociologists, but at least the skills and even more than the skills, the willingness to say, well, here's a cultural expression I'm unfamiliar with. Let me inhabit that space for a little while and search for the fingerprints of God wherever they might be. Right. So that I can build bridges that are beautiful. With them. I, might, I might never fully understand them. I might never even fully appreciate their expressions. But I know the fingerprints of God are here because he's, 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 he's a historical God. He's embedded in every culture and every generation. We don't do that. We just like, oh, here's a new cultural expression. It's evil. End of yeah. story. And here's why. And it's like this conversation of syncopation is just a small example of that much bigger trend within us. That I'm like, man, if we don't deconstruct that, again, I keep using that word, like it's, it's important, like if we don't deconstruct that and fundamentally repent of it and, and seek, to, seek to develop new rhythms that are actually incarnational and missional, right. understanding the other, understanding the complexity of the other, seeking beauty in the other, yeah. we are, we're just going to keep what's the word I'm looking for? Like when you can't stop the bleeding, um, <laughs> you know, like when yeah, someone's bleeding, out. it just yeah. won't stop. Hemorrhaging. <laughs> hemorrhaging. Yeah. We, we, yeah. We won't stop hemorrhaging our young people and, 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 and we won't actually find a missional engagement with emerging secular culture that, that is meaningful, um, meaningful for them. Yeah. I think this is, yeah, again, uh, symptomatic of that. Now I had one more question on the rhythm thing. Yeah. And obviously in the next, as we get into philosophy and science, we're still going to be talking. There's a, there's an interplay between these there's, two. There's an overlap. Cause like, yeah. I think my my biggest interest is like hearing your thoughts on this idea, like that 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 sort of like a demonic presence can inhabit, uh, you know. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I want to talk really quickly. What What do you say to people who say to you, "Yeah, but that preacher cited that study that proves scientifically that syncopated beats, you know, are like." They, they, they make you more sexual or more, you know, like they basically lead to sin because that's yeah. like, the, I think that's my biggest frustration is when people pull out these studies, like, look, I don't, I don't trust the studies. <laughs> I think yeah. they're, you know, it's like whoever paid for the study, that's the result they're going to get. But I'm interested in your thoughts. Like, what, what do you yeah. say to that when people are like pulling out these studies? Like, you know, they played jazz to the rats and, you know, they ate each other. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. How, how do you interact is- with that? I love the 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 wording of it. Like, how, what do you say to those people? And it really depends on like what angle they're coming from or what they cite. You know, so <laughs> if it's like this pastor, uh, they, they were using the study and it proved that. And okay, what do I say to that? It was I would say, I bet you they didn't. I bet you it doesn't prove what you think it proves. I'll bet you the data is like barely related to the subject matter. I'll bet you, like, this is the thing for me, it may almost come across as biased, but like, from my experience, just holding the traditionalist viewpoint on music, to me, almost always screams of lack of 
information. It's like, if like, you can't have good information about the world and be a flat earther. I'm sorry. Mm. This, this, that's how it works. If you are a flat earther, I, then you are not good at science. Mm. End of story, right? And so when people come to me like, oh, the syncopation, it makes you, I'm like, stop. No, it doesn't. And the fact that you think that tells me you're not thinking clearly. Like you, mm. you are really not thinking clearly about this. So there's that. And that might sound dismissive, but like at the end of the day, I was like, oh, the other side is dismissive too. Like it's, it's just as like lazy, probably lazier, yeah. I would say. <laughs> so don't. Secondly, and, and it, again, it, it revolves around like, what is the nature of the accusation? If they say like, you know, Christian Berdahl, there was a, a talk he gave, a kind of like a panel thing at uh, Weimar, right? Him and a bunch of other people, Dr. Nedley, Neil Nedley included. I'm pretty sure he was there. Don't, don't quote me on that, but there, there's clips of it in, uh, you know, episode four of uh, Reframe Adventist Worship on YouTube. So people can check me on whatever. But uh, he's like, oh, you know, when you hear these types of beats, the sex hormones are released, right? Or you, your body goes into a state of arousal or, uh, you know, you, whatever. Okay, so there's something to do with sex. Okay, my response to that is, explain to me why that's bad. Mm. Explain to me why human sexual arousal is evil and do it without being a heretic because you're going to go into heretical territory, which I mean, obviously when we get into the philosophy side of things, I'll, I'll unpack that a little more, but uh, this again, symptoms of cultural blind spots, symptoms of areas where we're like, we've assumed certain things for so long that we, we are not able to, to unpack them and dissect them. You know, um, I, I would say to such a person, is it wrong to feel like you are sexy? Is, is it wrong? Is it wrong for be like, hey, man, I feel good. I look good. Is, is that bad? Is that evil? Mm. Is that vanity of vanities there? Or is there room for, for a healthy amount of, of self-appreciation and confidence? Mm. And, and is that the same thing as like promiscuity or, or looseness or however people want to define that? Furthermore, how, how does your culture define what is and isn't sexual? Mm because if you really get down into the nitty gritty of it, that varies quite a lot, right? Like, and, and, and people might be like, oh, there's relativism. I'm like, no, we operate on these assumptions all the time. Something that could be like borderline, like assault in one culture is just hello in another culture, right? Like if one of my buddies came and like, hey, Max, and just kissed me on the mouth, I would probably be like, excuse you apologize right now right but in another cultural context that could be like um just like a, a understood like oh yeah everyone does this like it's just a greeting mm -hmm. it's you a know? standard greeting yeah it's yeah. a standard greeting so like when people come with these kinds of things i'm like hold on there's so many assumptions included in what you're saying like can you please explain to me why being in tune with your own sexuality as a person or just like experiencing arousal that's not inherently evil now mm. obviously in the wrong context like that could be inappropriate but my sense is that 
for a lot of people on the traditionalist side, any type of artistic exploration of sexuality is always inappropriate 100% of the time, most mm. likely, right? Mm. Like, you know. You take a very Augustinian approach to, uh, yeah. to human sexuality. Oh. Yeah, yeah, which exactly. is not biblical, which we'll get into in a little we while. We'll get into it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think another thing that I've noticed as well is because uh, my wife is studying psychology and counseling, and one of the things that she's learned because uh, she has to do like stats, study stats, um, yeah. and you know statistics basically, and uh, obviously has to read studies, and it's incredible how in the world of science. Um, a lot of these absolute claims that people make, oh, this study proved this, like that is actually the most unscientific thing you could say. Yeah. Science can never really prove those types of things because there are so many variables that go that are at play. Like for example, just to throw one out there, um, if someone grew up, you know, if someone has had lots of experiences um, with... Um, you know, for example, expressing themselves sexually while listening to a certain type of music. When that person hears the music, the conditioning will awaken sexual feelings because of because of their background, because of their conditioning. Yeah. Or maybe they or maybe they listen to certain kind of music while they were getting high, right? Like when they hear that music again, it will make those neural pathways connect and bring back those memories and those sensations. Whereas someone who does not have that background with that won't have that experience at all. Um, right. They might have a completely different experience. And so when you're doing a lot of these tests, a lot of these, uh, you know, supposed scientific studies um, yeah. that that people then take as an absolute uh, sort of evidence for X, Y, or Z, that's actually really, really bad science. It, you, you can't actually make those claims because there is a multiplicity of variables, uh, almost too many to ever really fully study that go that are at play and then on top of that you have the who paid for the study and what was their agenda like what did they right. want the conclusion of the study to say um and then on top of that it's like i'm always dumbfounded by the people who will say well the study said this as though it's this infallible interpreter of things and i'm like well i got a study that says caffeine's like really good for you <laughs> and i've got another study that says if you have a glass of wine every day like that's really good for you and it's like oh those don't count it's like right. well i mean but you can't you know you can't really do that so yeah like for me the whole studies thing is really yeah it's really weird uh it, it doesn't it doesn't convince me um in, in any way shape or form uh, and I, and i think that for the most part they're like mega stretched to to make assumptions that we already brought to the table and we're just looking for anything we can to justify those assumptions Hey guys, that's all we have time for today, but I want to invite you to come back next week to check out the next episode. We've got a bunch more episodes coming and we're going to be exploring so much more, including time signatures and uh, things like Ellen White's relationship to this conversation, Adventist history, um, music and negative emotions and the interplay between those ideas. Uh, so yeah, look, I just want to invite you to keep coming back and checking out the rest of the season. This is going to be slightly longer than the last season, I believe, but uh, so, so meaningful. In the meantime, I want to invite you to like, subscribe, and share this resource with your family, with your friends. Let's bring this conversation to the table. Let's bring the other side of the story, and let's commune together and explore together and challenge one another as we seek to grow closer to Jesus. Catch you guys next week.
God bless. <laughs>